and welcome to the fifth episode of the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange Showcase where I invite bloggers, filmmakers and fellow film junkies to help me work for the 1001 film introduction to cult and obscure cinema that is the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange list. As always, I'm your host Elwood Jones of From the Depths of DVD Hell and joining me in the studio this evening is a blogger and full-time member of Exploding Helicopter, Will. Uh, welcome to the studio, Will. All right, uh, pleased to uh, pleased to be uh, on today, talking about a couple of really cool films. Yes, uh, the two films that we've got up for discussion this evening is the French noir, The Samurai, and we'll be following that up with Japanese thriller, uh, Branded to Kill. Two very different films, but showing the theme of uh, Hitman shot in a very sort of artistic style. But before we get on to our films this evening, uh, I'd just like to first of all just to get to know a bit more about uh, yourself or if uh, that's all right with yourself yeah by all means so um, uh, yeah yeah um first of all exploding helicopter for those of you listening obviously not familiar with the site why don't you tell us a bit about what the site's about sure so i run uh, exploding helicopter which um as the name suggests is a is a movie site dedicated to celebrating the art of uh, uh exploding helicopters in films and um it uh, might not be something that you've kind of paid much attention to, but um, once you start, no- once you notice your first uh, helicopter explode in film, uh, you'll find that it actually happens with uh, very strange regularity. So uh, when I noticed this phenomenon, I decided um, that I wanted to sort of set out to uh, catalogue it, and um, it's quite a strange little movie niche because um, not only do uh, helicopters explode with uh, a bizarre frequency they also um, explode in some uh, very very strange uh, ways so uh, there's uh, I've seen uh, helicopters being exploded uh, via psychically controlled flamingos Um, I've seen uh, helicopters exploded uh, by golf balls um, in other films so uh, there's a, it's a very uh, rich and bizarre world. So uh, we take a uh, we take a look at uh, so on my blog we take a look at the film and then we spend some time sort of uh, dissecting the uh, quality of the uh, helicopter explosion. So the quality of the effects and uh, the imagine uh, the imagination and creativity that the uh, sort of directors brought to bear on it. It's I mean it's certainly an, a unique theme for a blog, uh, basing it around exploding helicopters. Uh, I mean, was there one film that sort of sparked it all to begin with, or? Um, so the film that sort of sparked uh, where I had my sort of exploding helicopters sort of eureka moment was uh, a film, a very bad film called Cyborg Cop, which uh, uh, I'd got uh, from the pound shop, <laughs> and uh, I was watching it with my uh, flatmate at the time, and. Uh, uh, they sort of they sort of saw this this helicopter sort of uh, hovered into into view and uh, they said oh you know bet you that helicopter is going to explode in the next like two minutes and uh, sure enough it did and uh, it, that was a sort of eureka moment I just thought you know what Helico- these these helicopters they always they always explode and uh, uh, that was the sort of the sort of moment that was the kind of like the planted little seed in my mind and a little while afterwards. Uh, I thought, right, I'm going to uh, I'm going to sort of start doing a movie site, and I'm going to kind of start cataloging uh, all of these uh, all of these explosions. And so uh, uh, we've uh, I've just gone from there. I've cataloged uh, over 160 movies now, uh, witnessed uh, over 200 uh, helicopter explosions, and uh, I have to say, I did think that when I sort of did this, I thought, you know what, there's so many movies in the world. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do a kind of 
I don't, you know, I don't want to do a sort of general movie blog and just try to attempt to review sort of every every movie in the world that's ever been made. Um, you know, that's a route to madness. Yeah. I thought if I if I stick to exploding helicopters, you know, probably, you know, if I if I, you know, work hard at it, I'll probably get on top of that at some point, and then, you know. I can just sort of keep it ticking over. Um, I was obviously very wrong because the more, the longer I longer I do it, the more I realise there's just there's just millions of films with uh, exploding helicopters in. So uh, uh, unfortunately, it's it's too late now. I've got to keep uh, I've got to keep going. I mean, do you think there's ever going to be that point where you have enough of exploding helicopters? Do you think, damn it to hell with these exploding <laughs> helicopters? I'm going to do exploding boats or just do chick fakes or something like that. I mean. Do you think you're going to reach a point eventually where you just had enough of helicopters to explode? Or is there something within this sort of niche genre that you found for yourself that just keeps you coming back looking for more? I, uh, I've yet to, um, I've yet to tire of exploding helicopters. I think, I think it's really the the fact that there are just, you know, you just find uh, ex- uh, helicopters which are exploded in in new and more bizarre ways. So. Uh, I came across uh, this sort of Spanish um, uh, Spanish comedy sort of thriller uh, where um, somebody uh, blows up a helicopter by throwing an axe at it, um, which is uh, you know uh, probably wouldn't happen in real life, but it's something inside of, inside the world of a movie you can accept that it might happen. Um, so it's when you see things like that that kind of keeps you know that. That revives the the juices um, after you know after you sort of slogged your way through a particularly bad film uh, with a really unimaginative helicopter. When you come across one like that, it kind of uh, it kind of uh, gives you the motivation to keep going. So uh, you know, I think I'm I think I'm stuck with uh, exploding helicopters for good. I mean, it's certainly interesting whenever you have a blogger uh, such as yourself who finds this overlooked sort of genre. I mean, we saw it with Vern when he, who did Seagalology, which was a study of uh, Steven Seagal movies. And obviously yourself, which is looking at the unique ways which helicopters can explode. And even now as we're talking about it, I'm trying to rack myself, my, my sort of brain of like other times when I've just seen it. And there are... Something about helicopters that always they're always trying to find unique ways to make them explode more than any other sort of form of transport. Um, only your sort of unique one I can think to mind would be in the Bermuda Depths, which would be a, tr- a helicopter exploding by being hit by a giant sea turtle. <laughs> What's that film called again? It's called the Bermuda Depths. Um, it's basically it starts off as a ghost story, and then it for some reason it diverts into this giant sea turtle that appears at the end. And it's got Cole Weathers wearing short shorts. If if you need like another reason to watch it, I don't need Carl Carl Weathers in uh, inappropriately short shorts um, and a helicopter being blown up by a sea turtle. I mean, you know, <laughs> you're you're lucky. I don't hang up now and go and watch that film. To be honest, I will I will make sure I send you a send you a link. We'll send you a copy of it so you can enjoy that one. Uh, well, I've written it down. It's um, it's it's going on my list of uh, films to be urgently reviewed. Okay. Um, obviously, with sort of cult cinema on a whole, it is a very popular topic for video bloggers, especially um, in these sort of times where video bloggers seem to be taking more the precedence over the sort of more traditional written bloggers. Would you say there's still a place for sort of the old school bloggers, or do you think we've now been rendered obsolete by video bloggers? Oh wow! Um, I think there's, uh, I think there's, uh, I think there's a place for uh, old school bloggers. Um, I, I, I think that uh, there's enough uh, 
for a variety uh, for a variety of reasons i think that um uh there's luddites uh, still out there there's a lot of luddites still out there who quite like who uh, who quite attach to the written word um and also i think that um you know you can navigate um written articles in a way which you can't with um with uh, video bloggers so you can kind of sort of um skip you can sort of skim through a few pieces to sort of get a flavor of whether this is something that you really want to sort of dip into whether um with a sort of uh with uh, i think with um uh video bloggers or, or podcasts you kind of um you know it's a bit harder to sort of um test the waters to see if actually this is going to be something that you um are going to like going to be something that you um sort of enjoy so um i think there's uh i think we're not dead yet okay i mean certainly an interesting point that emily raised on our first episode in regards to how people now read blogs do you think people now they're sort of like reading more on their phones and like ipads that they feel less inclined to comment than they would have before where it was sort of more just sort of on their laptops and desktops that they would be reading bloggers. Yeah, I listened to that um, that discussion, and um, I thought it was a really um, I thought it was a really um, interesting point because yeah, I think there is um, before um, I've sort of done various sort of uh, blog um, projects um, over the years, and there's I've definitely noticed that um, that tailing off of um, comments. Um, um, so there is, uh, you know, some, um, you, there are, st- uh, still some sites that have got sort of, you know, very active, um, sort of, you know, communities like attached to the posts who, who'll sort of, um, you know, who have discussions kickstarted by kind of like new pieces that, that go up. But, um, yeah, I do, I do, um, think that, yeah, the changing way in which people are accessing the web, um, uh, has definitely had, um, uh, an, an impact on um, on the kind of like the sort of interactivity on on sort of like people's blogs, but then I also think that um, you also then think that say the rise of Twitter is there's um, that you know that's a whole new outlet for that interactivity that people were perhaps looking for when they were making comments. So I think that um, uh, it's maybe shift you know that people look for that interactivity on a different um on a different platform now so um i think that um uh it's probably it's just as um there's just as much there's probably more interactivity there's more people that you can kind of connect with and communicate with um it's just not necessarily um focused on the blog now it'd be be taking place in in other sites so whether that's um you know whether that's twitter or or some of the other kind of social media sites are out there I think they certainly agree. I think that the way people interact has, has I think, changed. Uh, it's now become the point where, especially, I noticed this, that I had to obviously set up a Twitter feed for my own blog after years of saying I would never go on Twitter, and now I do have a Twitter feed. So, if you want to follow me, it's at Elwood underscore Jones. Uh, Will, do you want to promote your own feed while we're talking about Twitter? Yeah, don't mind. So, if you want to find me, I'm on Chopper Fireball. So, uh, if you're a Twitter fan, there's a way to go, and certainly. It's now a sort of an essential part. If you're blogging, that you have to have the Twitter feed, you have to have the Facebook feed, um, and if you, to an extent, you have to have the Google Plus as well, which kind of used to a lesser extent. And these seem to be more the outlets people want to sort of comment and interact with. So I think it's certainly you're right. It's certainly ch- people are changing those sort of ways. But I think at the same time as you mentioned before, that there is obviously that still place for written blogs, and that's uh, still nice to see that. 
we can all uh, sort of still enjoy movies there, either as video bloggers or uh, old school bloggers. But just obviously moving on to your movie taste now, away from obviously your blogging activities. Um, something I'd like to always ask is, uh, what would you consider to be your scariest movie? My scariest movie? Oh, uh, well, you know, I'm not actually a, a massive, uh, not actually a sort of massive um, horror buff. Um, but uh, one film that really um, still stays with me now um, and uh, gave me uh, a very uh, disturbed night's sleep was um, uh, The Vanishing, the original version. I hasten to, uh, I hasten to add, <laughs> not the, uh, the absolutely chronically dire remake. Um, and... Um, that's uh, I think I think it's a I think it's a Belgian or is it a Dutch film? I can't remember now. Um, I believe it's I believe it's a Belgian film. Yeah, I think I think I think you're right. It's Belgian, and um, it has um, it just has this really um, cre- had this really creepy sort of atmosphere throughout. Basically, it's the story of um, uh, of uh, this couple um, and the he, this guy's girlfriend goes missing, um, and then he's kind of taunted. Um, by the pers- by the person who sort of abducted her and um, he there's a kind of like extended sort of cat and mouse game between the two of them and then um, the at the ending the, the guy has to sort of uh, be abducted himself in order to sort of uh, uh, kind of like f- solve the mystery um, and the ending of the film um, is really uh, is really really horrible after the kind of two hours that you've invested in sort of this mystery um, and uh, I watched it it was on very late at night um, and uh, I then had to try to uh, go to sleep afterwards and, uh, without much um, without much success so uh, that's probably my scariest movie that's cool um, now, obviously, do you have a film which would you would consider to be like your guilty pleasure? Um, so my um, guilty pleasure is uh, probably uh, the forget which year it came out. It's uh, Disclosure with uh, Michael Douglas and uh, Demi Moore. So it's um, uh, based on a Michael uh, Crichton novel, and it's uh, it's this uh, it's a kind of uh, tale of um like sort of battle of the it's trying to make a point about kind of the um uh sort of uh sort of power between the sexes so um it has michael douglas plays this kind of like big shot um sort of uh, computer developer who is uh, raped by the sexually predator predator demi moore which is uh, given uh, michael douglas's kind of uh, now uh, an infamous is now known as an infamous sex addict is slightly uh, slightly ironic um and the film is just this is just totally you know the kind of so the premise of this this film that where michael douglas is yeah the the sort of victim of uh, demi moore's sort of yeah. predatory sexual advances is completely ridiculous um there's a kind of sub there's a kind of computer tech thriller subplot in the film so uh, where where apparently sort of in 1993 or whenever the film was made sort of we were only a few years away from sort of um using computer memory would only be accessed via virtual reality um michael douglas works at a computer where he only gets one email a day um you know it's just a completely um it's a completely ridiculous film it's completely over the top um it's got uh it's got a, it's very lavishly directed it's got a it's got a 
you know, it's got a very um, good score um, by Ennio Morricone. So it's this, it's a perfect uh, union of high production values, but an absolutely uh, stupid plot, which I think makes for, uh, you know, a particularly uh, enjoyable film. And in this case, particularly guilty pleasure. (laughs) I love that you obviously mentioned the fact he only gets one emo a day, and it just casts my mind back to obviously when Lawnmower Man was released, and everyone had that big VR craze where everything was going to be virtual reality, and this was going to be the way forward. Um, and it kind of petered out after a couple of years. And again, it's always funny when you see like these movies that are sort of like pre-internet, and the one be, being Perfect Blue, uh, where the main character sort of like asking, "Oh, the internet, what is that?" And you watch it now and you're wondering why these characters are questioning these things, but you could obviously put it into context when the film was made. But um, certainly Demi Moore, this disclosure was obviously made at a time when she was making films that people were talking about. She did that. Uh, She did Indecent Proposal, which again had everyone sort of talking, and then she sort of went to the Gimme More sort of phase, uh, which she she was doing like G.I. Jane and I I think I'm right in saying Striptease, is that right? That sounds about right, yeah. Um, I get Striptease and Showgirls confused. I think Showgirls is the one with Elizabeth Berkeley from Saved by the Bell. That's right, yeah. Um, and then she sort of petered out um, till I think, Charlie's Angels uh, 2 was when she decided to make a reappearance. But, um, no, I think Disclosure is certainly a new one for the guilty pleasure pile. Um, and what would be, the, you say, the film that, the last film you saw that sort of blew your mind that you sort of had to rush out and tell people about? Um, ooh, uh, that would probably be, um, there's an uh, Iranian film that I saw, um, a little while back called, um, The Hunter, and, um, it is, um, about a guy whose, um, uh, sort of wife and, um, sort of daughter are kind of, um, who d- disappear, um, basically, you know, it's the kind of like the the Iranian um, police have kind of uh, sort of spirited uh, spirited them away, um, and the story sort of then sort of ends up with this guy being pursued by the police in um, in uh, in these woods, and it's a really um, it's a re- it's just um, filmed in a in a very simple way, but it's a really really powerful um, film which um, just uh, whizzes past. Um, and uh, yeah, it's completely, um, completely gripping. And um, yeah, I, I was definitely um, really sort of blown away after sort of seeing that, and um, was definitely sort of uh, you know uh, mentioned, you know, sort of uh, advising uh, a few people to uh, to sort of uh, go out and uh, and uh, sort of seek it out and watch it. Yeah, it seems to be another country which is producing some fascinating cinema. Uh, another film, obviously, when you mentioned Iranian, the first film that came to mind would be the 2013 film Big Bad Wolves uh, which is Israel's only second horror film um, which again you don't expect a country like Israel to produce these films you'd expect a more sort of basic film style but they're out there producing films which are rivaling sort of Hollywood sort of movies so I think it just goes proof that world cinema is still an exciting place and I mean are you a big world cinema fan generally? Yeah, I like to. Um, I I don't. Uh, you know, I I 
like to watch films from all different decades and from all different um, all different countries. So um, you know, I, I don't um, uh, I'm not sort of uh, I'm not put off by subtitles. So uh, yeah, I like to um, I like to um, to sort of watch films from all different places because I think you sort of you um, and I think you know as we'll, we'll as we'll maybe sort of talk about with the sort of two films that we are sort of going to discuss. You know, there's interesting effects in the sense that. You know the the kind of the filmmaking that takes place in you know in other countries is influenced by Hollywood, but then the, the those films then go back and influence like Holly you know Hollywood films in the future, and so there's this sort of cycle where kind of ideas are, are taken, they're changed, and then other people in other countries then get inspired by those ideas. So you know if you don't um, you know if you uh, if you sort of watch films from sort of all of the, all of the all of the um, from sort of all different uh, periods of time and from all different countries, you can start making those kind of connections, and it really, I think, sort of like enriches your sort of, you know, um, your experience of uh, of watching films because you can start making sort of, um, you know, connections across time and across countries between films. Cool. And finally, uh, what would you say is the film that you return to the most? Uh, probably the film that I return to the most is the is one that I actually watched um, again today. So um, I rewatched uh, the Wild Bunch again today, and um, it's a film that I've um, I've loved for sort of like over twenty years. And um, the I think what I what I really love about it is the is that it's just it's such a rich film. The 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 richness of the relationship between the characters. The there's a, there's a kind of incredible I think sort of. Um, sophistication to the to the, the to the themes in the film of, of kind of like honor to, of honor of loyalty of professional codes of honor um there's an incredible depth to that and um yeah it, it's a film which um just rewards uh rewards me or every uh repeat viewing that i have so um yeah i uh, like to um sort of dip back into that film on a regular basis oh thank you um right so well, I guess without further ado, we should uh, just move on to the first of tonight's films. The first film that we're looking at this evening is the 1967 French crime drama directed by Jean-Pierre Miville. It is uh, Le Samurai, which stars Alan Delton as Jeff Costello, a methodical hitman who, following a, night cl- a hit on a nightclub owner, finds himself not only being pursued by both the police, but his former employers as well. Um, this was a first time watch for myself. Uh, so thank you very much for picking this one, Will. Um, what was your sort of feelings on the Samurai? So the Samurai is um, I better sort of profess uh, a vested interest here. It's probably my um, favourite film, um, and uh, for me, it is just a brilliant, haunting um, sort of gangster thriller. Um, it's takes the conventions of the of the of the crime film and boils them down um to their essence and uh, i think in doing that it it elevates them to it, it elevates these kind of familiar tropes to to sort of mythic status um and i think that um you know for me it i'm a big fan of um film noir um and I think that this this film is, you know, that Jean-Pierre Melville is, uh, you know, self self-confessed huge fan of of crime American crime films in the 30s and 40s. And you know, this is all, you know, he's taken all of like the best bits of those films. He's kind of stripped away um, sort of all of the unnecessary components, and he's just created this sort of, I think, this kind of like perfectly formed like miniature masterpiece. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a, I love this film um, probably more than any other. It's certainly a unique 
Hitman movie. Um, and the fact that if we, I would imagine this was done for the Hollywood system, it'd be a lot more action packed. There'd be epic shootouts, and I think we have about four shootouts throughout the whole whole film. Um, but you don't feel like you you're losing anything. It's a very sort of simplistic film. There's a little bit of a light jazz score in places, but for the most part, the film is unscored. As uh, so you're just watching the character of Jeff as he goes about his sort of business um, and trying to, for the most part, evade the police. Um, and I think if it wasn't for the sort of the incredibly persistent investigating officer played by Frank, Franco Pereira, um, who just would not let it go. Um, he's absolutely convinced Jeff is the person he needs to be hunting down and ruthlessly pursues him through it. Um, I mean, do you think that the film, the fact that it only has those sort of like moments of scoring, do you think it stands without having to have the score to sort of drive and, and give the film sort of emotion in places? Well, I think that what um, Melville was sort of striving for with this film is is to is to actually um, is 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 to is he's going for minimalism. So you know he's um, as you sort of um, sort of said in your comments, there is very little action in this film, and it's because Melville is um, he's emphasising kind of the the process and or like the mechanics um, of. Um, so of uh, Alan Delon's kind of hits or the kind of like the assassinations that he does, he's he's emphasising the process over the over the actual action. So there's a kind of there's a sort of scene um, where there's a very sort of slow, tense build-up where um, Alan Delon has to um, uh, have a has a, r- a rendezvous with another hitman um, on a railway bridge, and there's a kind of there's a long, slow, methodical build-up to it. And then they have this confrontation, and just as they have this confrontation, the the camera cuts away to this kind of like long shot, um, and the the action is act, is is completely obscured by the kind of the structure of the bridge. And you know, it's a very deliberate act um, by um, Melville to kind of actually get rid of these those kind of moments within the film because he wants to he wants I think he wants to place the focus on the the methodical way in which um, Alan Delon kind of um, sets up his alibis um, and then sets up the um, sits up sets up the hits that he's been sort of hired to do so it's um, it's you know it's kind of um, yeah it's 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 a deliberate um, a sort of strategy to kind of like pl- to kind of focus on a different element of the film. I think just obviously just uh, we'll discuss Andalon's portrayal of the character of Jeff. He's a very unique sort of hitman um, in the fact that he's not a hitman who's got very, loads of gadgets. Now I think his his own weapon of choice is just a simple revolver. Um, and when we open, we see him. He's sitting on the bed and he's smoking, and he's in this unfurnished apartment with like grey bare walls. And the only sort of decoration he has in the apartment is this little bird in a cage. Um, and it's such a cool scene, which I always like to try and avoid using the word cool when mentioning French cinema because it's such an obvious <laughs> sort of thing. It's sort of like saying Cal say moo. It's sort of a <laughs> given thing that French cinema is a very much like a moo point. But the way that Jeff goes about his work, he's, he's just got this icy coolness about him. I think there's a scene, the scene at the start where you see him break into a car and he pulls out this like janitor's <laughs> bag of keys <laughs> And he's constantly, he just, his focus never switches from the front. He's always looking forward and he's got this just ice cool demeanor as he just tries key after key, just like placing it beside him before he finds the one he needs to sort of drive off. I mean, 
Do you... he's, he's like a mecha- he's like a mechanical clock, isn't he? In in this movie, he doesn't have any he doesn't have any um, sort of emotional reactions to things, and everything that he does is a very is in, is is in a very methodical in a methodical way, as you say. And that 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 scene's a great example of of just that sort of uh, that sort of uh, uh, sort of methodical mechanical type of, of yeah. process, which which he kind of like applies to you know to his work and and seemingly to his his whole life as well. I mean, it's it's interesting because you said that he applies to his whole life as well because one of his sort of operas arandis uh, is the fact that he uses the alibis uh, to sort of disguise his work. In particular, he's got um, he's involved in a relationship with a married woman called Jane, here played by Natalie Delon, and he builds up this builds up all these alibis. You see her before he goes off to do the hit. He's like explained to her what time he was at the apartment to, and he's working out what time her husband to be home as well. So he's slowly builds up his alibi as you see him go off to do the hit on the nightclub owner. Uh, you see him obviously go off to his the garage to have the number plates changed on the car. And you see this like slow build up to him pulling the hit, which ultimately it seems kind of clumsy in a way. Uh, because he's not like using a silencer or anything like that. He just basically turns up and shoots a guy. Um, and he's not got any sort of disguise really apart from his sort of wide brim hat and his raincoat. Um, I mean, would you say that his style is sort of like effective as as Hitman Go, or do you think he is sort of like intentionally sort of clumsy because he knows he can sort of cover himself through the other things he's set in place? Um, I don't. It's, a, it's an interesting. Um, it's an interesting um, uh, observation. Um, I guess he is. Um, I guess he is relying on the the. I guess he's relying on the sort of strength of his uh, of his alibi. Um, I think you're. I think there's a for, for me that the kind of like the the sort of the interesting aspect to the kind of like the hits that he does is the fact that um, you know and it's kind of it, it feeds off the off the title of the film is that um, you know he in the way in which he approaches those kills is that he um, you know he he approaches the person sort of head on you know they have a chance to to see him and, and react to them um, and it's a bit you know he then. Um, will have his um, he then will have his hands by his side and actually allow the, the person that he's there to, to kill to actually draw first but then through this kind of um, then through sort of like that sort of you know he, he then is those is, is quicker he's able to um, sort of actually magically get his gun into his hand and then shoot the person um, and so that is you know it's, it's kind of um, you know it's, I think it's that's part of this sort of professional code of honor, which um, uh, Delon has as a hitman, in in the sense that you know he will, you know he will he will give people, you know he will he will tackle people head on, and they will have you know a chance to defend themselves or save themselves. And I think it's part of his kind of professional code of honor to sort of approach his work in that way, rather than use silences or or kind of kill people um, at moments when they're uh, when they're unaware. So I see it as part of the the kind of um, the sort of allusions to you know the this kind of like samurai code of honor which um, he operates by. It's certainly interesting, and the fact that obviously he hasn't got this amazing sort of disguise he is just very much in his coat and hat. Uh, there is a great scene at the start when the police are pulling in all these suspects, and I think they've got like a hundred people. And for some reason, they've all got guns. But the reasons they've been out with, and it's like, <laughs> oh, the streets of Paris are very dangerous at night. Um, and you have to kind of wonder, like, 
is the one, of, one of them. One of them even just says, Pwah. He just refuses, <laughs> just refuses to refuses to answer because he just, just he just thinks the question of why he has a gun is beyond contempt. So. <laughs> I just like to wonder: it, does Melville have a different sort of vision of what Paris is like to everyone else? Um, has he sort of created his own sort of Paris within the, his within his the world of his films? Yeah, I mean, if you um, if you watch his um, so Melville kind of um, from the pretty much from the sixties to to the end of his career um, and the end of his life in the early seventies, he pretty much made, only made um, crime thrillers, um, and within those films, he creates this these unique worlds, which um, they're really just kind of like contained. They're just um, just contained little worlds within his films so reality doesn't really um doesn't you know the reality of the world doesn't really exist within them they're just these kind of like idealized sort of um worlds based on the kind of the based as i say on the kind of genre conventions you know for the crime films like established in sort of american cinema in the 30s and 40s so they're you know they're all of the all of his all of those films you have you know, people dressed in trench coats. They all wear fedoras. There's always a police lineup scene. There's always scenes in a nightclub. It's always raining. You know, so he just creates these his own little world, um, his own kind of little idealized gangster kind of crime thriller world. Um, so yeah, the you know reality, um, you know, is is thrown out the window really um, within these uh, in those films because he's just creating these little kind of miniature ones to operate in. I did obviously, it's funny that you should obviously mention reality because the, obviously the officer which is investigating him, uh, here by, here by Pierre, um, he is so convinced that, that uh, Delon is obviously the, the guy that he's after. Um, obviously, um, obviously we, even though he's got all these sort of alibis in place um, and the, all the evidence is basically stacked against him that it could be anyone but him, uh, I mean, do you find it slightly unbelievable that he like ruthlessly sort of pursues him as as much as he does? I I, com- I completely um, I completely see that point um, because I but I think that it sort of it sort of um, I can only sort of really go back to kind of like the point I was I was sort of um, sort of making before, which is yeah. these the the reality the, you know the reality within these films doesn't really. It's not really important. Um, so, yeah, it is, you know, the, 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 uh, other detectives would have, you know, there is no rational reason why, um, you know, the, the commi- you know, the, that police commissioner is, is so um, hell bent on trying to kind of um, pursue um, Delon as the kind of the, as the, as the culprit of this uh, particular hit. Um, but then there's, you know, there's, but then there's lots of moments within this film that don't really, if really makes sense, you know, for instance, you know, the whole thing with, um, you know, there's, um, you know, uh, Delon has this sort of almost psychic connection with, uh, with the bird. So he's, um, you know, there's a, there's a scene where the police kind of come into his, uh, the room where Delon lives, um, and the kind of bug his, bug his apartment. Delon kind of comes back, um, and just through kind of the birds chirping, he's able to detect that something's wrong and then begins to sort of, you know, search his room for this sort of police bug. And, you know, and that, you know, it, that doesn't really, that, that, you know, there's no logical reason for that. But I think within this, this, this sort of um, idealized world that Melville has created, I think, you know, such, 
such things are possible. So I think that you have to, um, uh, I think you have to just sort of um, ignore um, those particular elements, or just kind of just yeah. go, just go with the flow. Really, I think. I think it certainly helps, especially when you look at his romantic interactions. Obviously, he's got his love of Jane, um, mm. and to a late to an extent, he also gets involved with the piano player Valerie, uh, played by the very nice uh, Kathy Rosier, um, and. It's so weird because he sort of randomly turns up at her apartment and has this connection with her the whole way through from when he first sees her in the nightclub and then he obviously sees her later. And at the end, he it it rounds up with him and he's watching her play the play the piano again. Um, I mean, the ending. I mean, did you find it sort of distracting, or do you, again, did you just put this down to Melville's sort of world view that uh, obviously? You can have someone detached as Delon's character, and he can still obviously be attractive to these these women, even though he's like completely um, emotionally unavailable at all times. It would seem. Yeah, it is. It is really. Um, it's. It's. I. Again, you can. I. You just. I think. I just go with them. I just go with the. Just go with the flow, and I just. I'm just kind of sold on the the app. This kind of um, sort of uh, unique atmosphere that. Um, that kind of Melville sort of creates within his films, because you know why does because you know if you examine it, there's no what 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 does Jane get from her relationship with uh, with um, Delon? Because he's a completely he just exudes sexual ambivalence. You know, I, I find it hard hard to imagine um, Jane and Delon having a you know a, you know a, a, a romantic tryst. Um, you know because. Delon is just—he just looks like he's utterly uninterested in in sex. So you you sort of what what is why is Jane providing him with these um, you know uh, alibis? Um, and similarly, you know why is um, you know it um, you know why does there seem to be this sort of uh, you know uh, sort of sexual spark between kind of you know Delon and the uh, and Delon and the and the piano player? Obviously, there's some other dynamics to that kind of relationship, but. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, it's it's a sort of um, it is a it is a peculiar aspect, but um, you know, I, again, I just you just have to um, uh, you know, uh, I, I choose to buy into the kind of this uh, into the sort of Melville's world and just go and go with the and go with the flow because you know it's um, I think it's not it's not a world where logic um, wholly operates. It's one where um, atmosphere and mood are dominant um, and you know kind of uh inconvenient sort of plot point you know the reality plays second fiddle to the importance of conveying this kind of melancholy uh world which um uh, melville wants to create yeah and again uh, while there will be spoilers throughout this podcast i will warn in advance um i don't want to ruin the ending of this film um as i kind of feel that it's left up to the viewer to sort of interpret themselves but did you think that the ending, without again trying to spoil it, yeah. uh, if you can, um, did you feel that the ending kind of came out of nowhere and that that it was only sort of created because Melville didn't know how to end the film, or do you think he had sort of some idea of uh, with his ending that he gives us? Um, so for me, the ending, um, I I think this is the I think this is the perfect ending for me. Um, I can see I know I'm mean, I've um, I've shared this film with other people and they've had um, they've definitely had problems with it. So I, I and I and I can un- I can understand that um, uh, completely. So um, you know I I, I don't um, 
uh, I don't, you know, I don't try to talk them out of it or think they're fools for for sort of having a different opinion to myself. But for me, it is a it's a perfect ending because I think that it um, it allows. Um, because it all comes back to this kind of this sort of uh, Delon samurai. For me, it all comes back to Delon's sort of samurai code, this sort of professional code of of honor that he has, whereby he, um, I think that the uh, and but by um, sort of trying not to um, not to um, spoil the ending, I think that it allows him to um, to kind of observe both his professional code of honor and his also his, also his personal feelings or personal code of honor so for me the, the 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 ending is the perfect ending because it perfectly is is it's able to resolve but for me both of those aspects of sort of delon's personality in a kind of in a in a sort of unified uh, in a unified way so um for me the ending the ending is 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 perfect and, and works really well but um i'm sensing that you had some uh, you had a, maybe had a different view I don't know. I, I like the ending. Um, and again, I like the way it does tie into his code and the fact that we sort of come a, a full circle uh, from where we start with the film and where it ends. There's, I think it's more there's elements of the ending that I didn't particularly like. Again, it's hard to sort of discuss without ruining it. And it's one of those endings I feel that it's best that you obviously go in and you see it for yourself and then make up your mind. Mind for yourself, obviously, how you feel about it. But... In a way, I'll, it it is a good ending. In another way, so I think it's because there were certain elements I didn't I didn't like. They just perhaps didn't sit quite right with me. Well, there's um, I mean I, th- I think that the 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 ending is um, uh, it follow it it follows um, the as you said it does it, the the ending is it does mean the film does come full circle because the the sequence which opens the film is then essentially repeated at the end of the film but there's some very very subtle differences um in that sequence so delon steals a car he gets the number plates changed um he then sort of go he, he then sort of goes through um sort of some of the some of the steps that he did before in terms of um in terms of his alibi but they're they're all slightly different they're, there's all important differences on along that route so um which signify um that um that that, that there's going to you know that this there's going to be a different um sort of uh, outcome at the at the end of this uh, at the end of this sequence and um you know, I think it's uh, as I say. For me, it, it feels like um, for me, it's it's the perfect way to sort of uh, um, resolve the resolve the film. But um, you know, I, as I say, I've I've uh, I've shared this film with other people, and and they've had um, you know, and some of them have had difficulties with it. So, and I can I can understand I can understand that because it is a very austere sort of film um you know there isn't there aren't any great moments of of action um uh, it is it's pri- primarily interested in kind of mood and atmosphere um you know there's there's not there is no characterization at all um and yeah so if you if you are yeah so you either get carried away by that mood and atmosphere or you don't and you know um i am not going to i you know i couldn't i i I don't think this is a a film where you can knock people for not getting for not going on that journey because you know it is horses for courses really i will say it's a lot more accessible than i was expecting it to be um being a favorite of the art house crowd I think, again, because it isn't high on action, it's more about mood and atmosphere. Um, and especially because of the period of which it was made in French cinema, 
there is that tendency for a lot of critics to sort of build it up and make it seem a lot less accessible than it is, and it is quite a straightforward story uh, with sort of more sort of flair than you would expect from sort of like this sort of crime thriller. Um, and you can understand why it's been referenced in so many sort of films and other directors have like um, have, have like paid honor, paid sort of honor to it. Um, the most obvious reference I would, for myself would be with Jim Jarmusch's Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai, um, which also copies one of the hits uh, from this film. Yeah, there's a lot of um, there's there's quite a few um, directors who have um, paid sort of open homage to to this film. So um, uh, I think uh, Walter Hill's um, The Driver um, that he made with um, Ryan O'Neill. There are there's there's there are very very strong echoes of um, the samurai in that. Um, I think there's um, I think there are many samurai uh, many, many similarities with um, uh, Leon with uh, the samurai as well. Yeah. Um, and I even think that. Um, uh, that a film uh, that Drive um, with Ryan Gosling, that again for me there are echoes of um, Le Samurai um, in that film as well. Um, so uh, and uh, John Woo is a is a is a is a is a self-confessed fan of this film, and you can see you know in in the way his character smokes cigarettes and in, in the 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 kind of the deep you know the way that they dress in in these suits that you know he's um, he's similarly kind of. Um, uh, he, he loves the kind of the the sort of the, these sort of gangster uh, genre conventions, which you know Melville sort of really focused on, and uh, you know and John Woo's kind of uh, another person who's um, definitely been influenced by Melville's work. Especially with John Woo, I think we're talking John Woo. I would say that the two prime examples for myself, at least, would be A Better Tomorrow Two, uh, especially for the suits and um, and if sort of the killer, which is kind of in a way the sort of more action-packed version of the samurai. Um, obviously, they in the Keller replaces the bar pianist for a singer, mm. um, and you obviously got Jerry Fat, whose character is Jeffrey Chow, uh, which again seems to be like a reference to Jeff. Um, I felt that the two were very the same, and I mean it was certainly reinforced by the fact that you've got John Woo did a little essay on the Samurai when they released it through uh, Criterion, which is another reason to buy a multi-region DVD player. Uh, the Criterion Collection. We don't get them over here in the UK, which is kind of a shame. Um, so it kind of uh, another reason to justify hunting down a multi-region player. It's not, you know, I really need to. Uh, I really need to do that because um, for some reason, um, the Samurai is not is is criminally not available on on DVD. Um, kind of like in, in on a region two uh, region two issue there's a lot of other a lot of other melville's films have come out on dvd but there are some really um if you're familiar with his kind of like filmography there's a couple of absolutely like gaping black holes in it uh the samurai being uh one there's another one film another absolutely fantastic crime filler called um uh le deuxième souf which you know should be should be available on, on dvd so um i think uh i'm, I'm i might have to uh, splash out on, a, on all regions dvd because it seems to be the only way that um i'll be able to uh, get to watch those uh, those films on a sort of like regular uh, legal basis. Yeah, it's certainly the only way to uh, to watch all the Godzilla films, especially. <laughs> and they, we got like the first half of I'd say the Godzilla films between sort of mixing up on VHS and DVD. You can get like 
up to uh, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah and uh, Godzilla vs. Mothra. Uh, any of the later films, especially the millennial films, uh, you are going to need to invest in a multi-region player to watch those, unfortunately. I think ours sort of... Uh, it sort of petered out uh, early, and I'd never understood why, because the American market has them all, and they never fed over to us. So I've never... Distribution with Region 1 and Region 2 is another thing I've never really understood. Well, there, there's your argument in a... There's the argument in a nutshell. You know, you need to watch all of the Godzilla films. You do need to watch so, all the Godzilla like, films. So, like, you know, the purchase of uh, all Regions DVD player is therefore essential, so... Um, okay. Um, I don't know if there's any... Been else in the summary that you uh, feel that we that we haven't covered already before we uh, obviously move on to further viewing. No, let's uh, let's get stuck into Branded to Kill. Okay, um, if you obviously enjoy the summary, um, recommended further viewing for myself. With if you've obviously other than the films we've mentioned already, um, would be Anton Corbin's The American, and perhaps to an extent another Luke Besson film, which would be Nikita. Um, while as if you're looking for more art house badasses, uh, you can't also go too wrong with Only God Forgives. Um, Will, do you have anything you want to uh, add to that list before you, uh, we move on to Branded to Kill? Yeah, so um, I think um, if you uh, watch Le Samurai, or maybe if uh, maybe before you watch Le Samurai, there's a, uh, a 1942 film noir called This Gun for Hire with um, Alan Ladd. And there are many, many similarities between um, that film and um, uh, Le Samurai. So um, that's definitely would be that would be my recommendation for uh, further viewing. And, um, now where our projections just changes the reels, we're going to take a short break. But we'll be right back with our second film of the evening, Branded to Kill. Hello, everybody. On behalf of Nick, Joe and Vern. We would like to invite you back for a brand new season of the As You Watch podcast. In our upcoming season, we will be talking about franchises, trilogies, and series of movies that you will recognize and some that you may not. We will also continue to post fun and insightful interviews with many people in the world of entertainment, as well as feature a lot of great guests from other sites and podcasts. So be sure to check us out on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Podomatic, and on Facebook. And don't forget to check out our older episodes on our site, asyouwatch.wordpress.com. Welcome back to the second half of our show this evening. Uh, the second film, which is uh, just being queued up now on the projector, is the 1967 Japanese Yakuza movie, Branded to Kill. Directed by Suzuki, Shijuki, Suzuki even, I do apologize. Um, it follows Go- Goro Hanada. He's a Japanese underworld and third-ranked hitman who finds himself, his world thrown into confusion after a hit goes badly wrong, uh, as he soon finds himself being not only pursued by other hitmen within the area, as they all rank for his position, but also the two women he loves as well. Um, another art house hitman movie. Um, how would you say this is in terms of comparing it to the Samurai, which we looked at in the first half? So it's... Um... Brandon's Kill is a very, very different film to The Samurai. Um, so whereas The Samurai is all about, um, you know, is all, is all about minimalism, about stripping things down to their kind of like bare essence and by, you know, and kind of 
and kind of um, diluting the 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 action um, to to sort of uh, you know just diluting it away. Uh, branded branded to kill is you know is absolutely bursting and teeming with um, with ideas, with striking images. Um, and, you know, it's in, it's insanely rich um, and inventive. Um, so it's very very different in that way. But I think that there are some similarities in the sense that um, you know branded to kill is. Uh, you know, uh, Suzuki is clearly really interested in the the genre conventions of like crime films and gangster movies. Um, but um, whereas uh, whereas Melville wanted to kind of um, to sort of boil them down to their essence and kind of and kind of you know pre- present them in this kind of like mythic perfect way, Suzuki basically he just wants to subvert them. He wants to kind of go wild with them. So I think both directors are kind of like really fascinated by genre conventions, but then what they then do with them are completely different. So um, there are some um, so hugely different films, but I think the 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 two directors do kind of share um, uh, do share some sort of um, similar ideas about the kind of uh, about these type of genre movies. Yeah, certainly. I think Brandis Kill, certainly from an action standpoint, Brandis Kill is the more action-packed of the two films. Uh, there's numerous shootouts, and you can see why filmmakers, again, such as Jim Jamoosh, Jim Woo, uh, Chan Wook Park, and Quentin Tarantino have all cited it as being a referential point. Um, this is, again, another first watch for myself. I've kind of been put off, as with the Samurai, in the fact that the sort of artist crowd sort of again tried to make it sound a lot more complicated than it is but again in many ways it is a very straightforward film there is moments of some artistic flair in there um such as the scene where he has like a breakdown you have all these silhouettes sort of appearing on the screen and perhaps some of the characters who are a little odd to say the least (laughs) um i mean let's just start obviously with our, our leading man um goro who's played by Joe Shindo. We have a hitman here who lives by his own code, uh, as Duval does in Le Samurai. Um, his, he's largely like a professional. Uh, and it's interesting at the start, he's like saying that women and alcohol, the two things that ruin a killer, and it sort of comes back on him as he descends into alcoholism, and it's his women <laughs> that are the ones gunning for him. Um, but his particular fetish, he has a fetish for boiling rice. He certainly, um, yeah, yeah. He, cer- he, cer- he certainly does, and um, it's uh, he can't, uh, yeah, he basically uh, can't entertain a lady unless he gets a, a good lungful of uh, the smell of boiled rice. I mean, it's the most bizarre, um, it's one of the most bizarre fetishes I think um, that uh, that I've, I've sort of seen in a movie. And um, the, 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 I mean, the, the sex in this film is. Like not necessarily in in terms of the, uh, in terms of sort of that you know how graphic it is, but you know it's there's some really weird messed up sex in 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 this film. I mean, the you've got, obviously you've got uh, you know Joe the, the sort of mate Joe Shishido he, he's, he's kind of you know he's turned on by the smell of, of boiled rice, and there's some really um, bizarre sex scenes in this film where characters are one minute they're trying to seduce each other, the next they're trying to, to kill each other, and then and then you know then they think oh you know what let's have sex anyway, and it's really really um, and you know some of it is uh, pretty uh, pretty rough stuff as well, and um, yeah it's just it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a hell of a film, I and mean, he's a hell of a hell of a hell of a leading man. 
I love the fact that you obviously mentioned about the sex scenes because Azuki is playing with the Japanese censorship laws. He's really pushing it as far as he can, um, especially in the way with Japanese censorship laws. Uh, they try to obviously put more things in shadow or through sort of placement to try and censor uh, body organs, which is why there's such popularity for things such as the Demon Schoolgirls. Um, <laughs> that you obviously is a very popular theme within anime because there's no censorship laws controlling a tentacle where there is for a penis. <laughs> um, but there is a sex scene where I believe it's with his wife and that she describes them as being like beasts and they're having these like really sort of rough sort of sex scene. And in the middle, he makes demands for her to cook rice. It's like, and they're just like lying on the floor and he's like, cook rice, cook rice. <laughs> And she's like, no, no, no. And then she eventually gives in. And he's sitting there cross-legged. He's inhaling the smell of the rice. And she's sitting there, like, chewing on what I thought was a bread roll, um, looking, like, completely disinterested. The, she's, like, a, a fair distance away from him. So you can see there's no sort of connection that he's... That they are sort of, like, uh, just people just, like, going after their urges at this point. There's, it's not, like, a romantic connection these characters are sharing here. It's no, uh, purely a sex suit one. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's it's really uh, it's 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 really really bizarre. And I think you know if you if you if you made that if you made that film, you know it's amazing to think that the, you know this that Suzuki kind of did this in 1967. Because if you made this if you if you shot this in 1997 or in 2007, you know people would be like talking about it as like oh my god, did you see that crazy you know that kind of like crazy messed up sex scene in in that film? You know, and this is in in 1967. You know, the guys working within a kind of like really the the a really uh, the, the a studio a very uh, restrictive um, studio system setup. So, you know how. Um, yeah, it's amazing to think that he managed to sort of uh, put that into a film that that is nearly sort of fifty years old. Because if it, if that was in a sort of film that came out, um, you know, tomorrow, it would be uh, you know, a provocative scene which would be talked about and commented in in uh, in reviews. So yeah, amazing to think that he did it um, all those years ago. I mean, it's interesting. Obviously, you say this was made for the Nukatsu Company, who again are one of the big big film uh, studios over in Japan. Um, at this time, certainly, they were sort of pushing the limits more to try and keep audiences. Uh, so in terms of violence, you obviously have this film, you have the Stray Cat Rock series. Um, and after those sort of films, they went on to make the sort of Roman porno movies or romantic <laughs> porn, uh, pornography movies. Uh, nothing to do with togas and anything like that, which obviously the name would suggest. Um, but here, Shizuki's tour for what is essentially been made as a B-movie, I think they only had about 30 days and around 20 million yen to actually get the film done. Um, the studio, the studio head, certainly didn't like it, and it was only really for the student sort of movement that the film really got sort of word of mouth. It sort of really got out there and became as big as it did. Well, it um, kind of it kind of destroyed his career because um, Suzuki, the studio like bosses hated it so much that Suzuki was like blacklisted um, like after this this film and didn't make a didn't make another kind of feature film for sort of uh, for 10 years. And, uh, you know, the, the, this, as, as you were sort of saying, this, this, the studio head was, 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 you know, they were just sort of sick of um, Suzuki making, uh, making these films, which were 
what which which they said were sort of you know incomprehensible um you know t- you know because they just I, I think they just probably wanted like you know a straightforward kind of gangster film they didn't yeah. want uh they didn't want hitmen who were who were you know sexually <laughs> sexually obsessed by the smell of boiled rice um in their in their in their films so um yeah he uh you know suzuki kind of um you know paid the price for um paid the price for his kind of um, inventiveness and creativity and as as you were saying yeah it's only through kind of um it's only through the passage of time that um his his films have sort of become sort of critically sort of um reevaluated and and he has the sort of um sort of standing that he that he does now yeah i think mean, certainly the characters to say the least we've obviously talked about goro um who again is unusual we've also got uh animu mari who is turns up as mizuku who's kind of the other woman um and she's obsessed with dead things in particular dead butterflies and dead birds in her car uh she has um a dead bird which she sort of hung like a i guess her version of fairy dice <laughs> from the uh from the mirror and um it's really interesting because the scene where he picks her up where she picks him up should i say uh, she's in a convertible car, but it's raining hard, and she doesn't bother putting the roof up. And he doesn't bother to like say anything. In and he he's there. He's pulling his coat up his head to light his cigarettes, and there's never one like comment of you know maybe we should put the roof up. But it's raining. And I mean that is yeah. yeah that, they just carry on like it's so normal. That is that is a uh, that I really really that's one of my favourite um, scenes in the movie because it is just it's again it's you know maybe if we're sort of sort of drawing sort of parallels with um with uh, the samurai you know that's a moment where um you know where suzuki just kind of like ignores reality and just kind of focuses on you know on on sort of like mood and atmosphere and what would what would be the kind of what's the what what would make this you know what would make this better what would make this this scene come alive and yeah uh you know it, it's such a it's such a I, I think it's such a beautifully it's a really um striking scene that i just think the the shots just like burn out the screen at you where you know there's like uh, uh mizuki with you know she's there in the car and the, the kind of rain's lashing down and it's kind of like her hair's all like uh all sort of pasted against her her head and you've got um what's his name sort of sheltering under his goro. under his coat yeah goro sheltering under his, under his coat trying to have a cigarette um it just is uh it just is fantastic because you just think i haven't you know i haven't seen somebody i haven't seen somebody drive a car with the top down in the in the, in the pissing rain <laughs> it's but, uh yeah it's uh, <laughs> it's certainly an interesting film it's an interesting counter to obviously the more traditional action scenes that we do get throughout the film um certainly he earns his earns his due as the number 3 killer in japan um, there's that. There's not only the great scene where he's um, escorting another hitman on a, a mission to protect her client, where he's sort of like running around and doing all these amazing shots. We also have this scene where he's trying to avoid being shot by uh, these other snipers, and there's a sniper in a pillbox, and you see him like run up with a gasoline can, and he sort of throws him in. And the guy does probably the longest on full body burn I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> where I don't know if he's trying to get to the ocean or where he's just runs his bubbles and he's going such a distance you wonder at what point uh, they actually put him out because it goes on for so long and there's no sort of discernible cut where they could have sort of like stopped cooling down and then carried on the shot 
that is a really that is a really good point. I know exactly that. I know exactly the the scene that you're talking about. And yet he he runs an absolute country mile. Um, I you know I I dread to think what sort of condition he that guy was in when they uh, they eventually put him uh, put him out because I can't think whatever fire sort of safety retardant gear they were using in 1967 on a on a low budget <laughs> Yakuza B movie I dread to think what they were what them what how good that sort of stuff was so it's, yeah I mean the full body burn is one of the most dangerous uh, stunt techniques you can do especially when involving fire um, it brought back to mind to perhaps a lesser extent uh, the scene where they're throwing gasoline in the thing from another world yeah, which again is now seen as a textbook scene and the fact here we because normally when you do full body burns it's only for a short period of time but as you said he is running a country mile and uh, even while it seems the film is speeded up I'm sure it was quite running that fast <laughs> um, but the, I mean the, the whole film just oozes with um, oozes with this like aura of coolness to it it's not just the fact that Goro for the most part is just constantly wearing sunglasses or the fact that everyone's just so calm as they go about their business uh, especially when you look at the hits that Goro pulls off and there's some real clever hits that, that he pulls off over the course of the film um yeah, so I mean, there's there's a there's a the great one where he kind of uh, he shoots somebody, um, sort of uh, unscrews a drain pipe and then uh, waits till they use the sink, wait till kind of like the water's coming down the pipe and then sort of shoots up the uh, shoots up the drain pipe. That's a that's a kind of uh, that was a that was a really sort of standout uh, standout kill. There's another where he sort of. Uh, kind of uh, gets behind um this uh advertising board which is like some sort of uh, some sort of like almost like animated uh, cigarette lighter and uh sort of uh you you kind of like comes out of the sort of top of the cigarette lighter to uh, to shoot somebody uh, somebody else and then there's a there's a fantastic scene where he um goes into the uh, an office and shoots about three or four people um and then um escapes on uh, the top of a sort of like hot air balloon which just happens to be sort of drifting uh, past the office window um at the time and there's a really in that scene there's um um there's a there's a use of point of view photography in in that particular scene so you kind of like as he moves around the room shooting these people it's all done from the sort of perspective of uh, goro and um you, you know that's quite a you know not don't see a lot of that sort of point of view photography in films of that era so you know it's kind of credit to sort of suzuki's you know inventiveness as a, as a director that he kind of is is coming up with these crazy sort of uh hitman methods but then also kind of you know shooting filming them in in really sort of like interesting and sort of like novel ways yeah the sentence the scene you mentioned where he shoots the three guys just one after the other um the third guy who falls in the chair and it spins around i did find that um, immensely amusing <laughs> well, there's beautiful. That I mean, that's just um, there's one of the joys of Brand to Kill are these are, the, are beautiful little details like that, like like exactly that. And there's a there's a one there's a kill earlier in the, in the film where um, somebody is shot dead, um, and moments before they've taken off their suit jacket, and so they fall over, and then their last act as they die is to bring their suit jacket up over yeah. their head 
you know, just like what, you know, normally what happens in a film, somebody then walk, you know, walks over, sees their dead and then kind of like drapes the jacket over. Whereas this, uh, this, this, this uh, dead person sort of, you know, conveniently sort of like as their last act of life, you know, conveniently does that, saves, uh, saves somebody else the trouble. And there's just beautiful little, little moments in the film like that, where Suzuki is just sort of, you know, just, I don't know what he's, He's just kind of making it interesting. He's just kind of like having a little joke with himself or having a joke with the viewer or just kind of doing things in different ways. And yeah, just so it's just a richly rewarding um, viewing experience for, for those little kind of tiny moments like that. I think certainly as with The Samurai, this is a film which very much exists within its own world. Um, or at least uh, the world of Suzuki as he views it. Um, as you mentioned, you've got the scene where the corpse covers his own head uh, there's obviously the more sort of artistic methods, uh, moments, and then we've obviously got uh, Goro's unique fetishes. Um, I mean, do you think that sort of adds to the film, the fact he sort of keeps it within its own world? He's not sort of like feeling compelled to try and make this sort of realistic movie in a way. I, I, yeah, I think that I think that that's what um, that I think that's the, the joy of the film is that he's just creating this his own little world. I mean, uh, I mean, I don't. I think what Suzuki, I think he just wanted to, you know, he's getting these, um, you know, I just, I get the sense that he's just an incredibly imaginative person who, you know, he's, he was, he was getting these kind of, um, you know, boring genre scripts to do. And he was just, you know, he was just like, you know, I've got, he was just like letting loose his creativity. So I think it's, you know, that it's, um, you know, at, you know, I think that's the, the absolute sort of joy of his films is that he's, he throws all these like ideas in all these sort of striking um all these striking images um in them you know he's he's some of his choice of camera shots are some of them are are very unusual you know finds interesting angles to kind of shoot scenes from so i think you know i i i think he creates his own little world and i think it's an i think it's an amazing um uh, it's an amazing world, uh, one which uh, you know I'm glad he's created, and I'm I'm very happy to uh, to spend uh, spend a few hours in it. Yeah, definitely. And even though he's not an action director, certainly the action scenes he does craft here are, I would say, comparable to any sort of like more mainstream action film. You've obviously got the scene that we've mentioned previously, but there's also a scene where he's uh, caught in a ambush. And he's hiding under the car and pulling the car along with a sort of a hook and rope. Yeah, that's an that's a that's a that's a brilliant yeah that's an absolutely brilliant scene and um, you know again just sort of testament to uh, to his uh, you know imagination yeah. to sort of you know come up with you know to come up with um, that as an idea to sort of shoot the shoot the scene and I mean I personally I just like the fact that you can combine scenes of action without losing the artistic integrity normally you have to settle for one or the other. You can't do sort of satisfying action scenes without sort of sacrificing your artistic merit or you have to like fully sort of focus on the artistic merit in, and like not include the action in the way like the samurai uh, does. Mm. Uh, but here he sort of like manages to get that rare balance of action and obviously uh, having those artistic uh, sort of flair. Yeah, I'd, 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 compl- yeah, I'd completely agree and... Um you know you can you can see that um he's you can see that he's been such an inspiration to sort of like other other filmmakers and um you know i think uh you know people like quentin tarantino i'm you know have um you know uh, you know definitely kind of borrowed sort of elements of his sort of sensibility and you know i think 
something like you know Kill Bill, I think sort of you know it uh, owes a bit to uh, owes a bit to Branded to Kill. Um, you know, so he's um, you know he's achieved something you know very rare in um, very rare in this film, and um, you know it's uh, you know it's great to sort of be able to um, it's great that his, you know his films have survived and you know have kind of like got the reputation that they do so, so that people can um, you know seek them out and watch them. Yeah. And one of the folk, one of the you obviously mentioned uh, Tarantino. Um, again, it's unsurprising that he would find inspiration in a director like Suzuki, especially someone who works within the Yakuza genre, which again is one of Tarantino's favourites, along with the spaghetti western uh, genre. Um, and again, we had in Kill Bill, we had Tokyo Drifters, constant switches between colour and black and white, which uh, we saw in the House, the Battle of the House of Blue Leaves. Um, I mean, again, here's a director, while perhaps not so well known to mainstream audiences, they would certainly have seen his ref- seen like his influence in, in other films. Um, again, Jim Jamrush, um, Ghost Dog, Where the Samurai, again, would be another key reference point. Uh, you can also look, perhaps to a lesser extent, at things like Johnny Toe's Full Time Killer, uh, which again has that ranking of Hitman. Um, I mean, with the actual ranking of Hitman part, did you feel like you were in the prisoner when he, in the second part, when he's like, look, who's number one? <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, you know that um, that that did have. I was. I did think exactly that because I'm a big fan of uh, the Prisoner TV series. Yeah, which, if, you, um, if you've never seen the Prisoner, you've obviously never lived. <laughs> yeah, and you know, yeah, if you've never seen it, you really need to uh, cor- correct that urgently. And um, I can't, um, you know, I think the prisoner was made sixty-seven, sixty-eight, so it, you know, would have been around the same time this film. So I don't know if, um, you know, I, I don't know if uh, if, they, if this this is co- a coincidence or which thing was influencing which. But it's uh, yeah, it's certainly a. It, I think it's a point for discussion. Um, certainly, it's. Because obviously the second half of the film is that he's trying to find who number one is. And num- the number one killer is this mythical figure that's described as being like a phantom amongst other hitmen. And at the end you do find out uh, who number one is. Um, I'm going to again choose not to reveal who it is because without going into the ins and outs of the story it would be a bit complicated anyway. Um, but the ending, it kind of goes a bit off the rails in the artistic way and goes a bit... <laughs> bit doolally um i mean were you happy with how it ended or did you think that it sort of uh saw him going off more of a kind of a whim um i i thought that um i really liked the um i really liked the kind of the build-up to the ending so there's the um the the number one the number one killer like moves it he kind of he, he kind of is basically sort of um has uh not the the sort of um Goro is like holed up in his apartment. He's worried that kind of uh, the number one killer is is going to kind of um, uh, kind of shoot. He's uh, going to kill him, and the kind of number one he's like harassing him. He's phoning him up, um, and then then in a like a bizarre twist, the number one killer moves in like in with the in into the flat with with Goro for for like you know for a few for a few days and then they just live together in this like apartment um, like and they kind of create these rules which they uh you know going to kind of like live with so they kind of eat together they go to the toilet together i mean it's really it's really really like i like i just love the fact that the film decided to go in that direction because it's just sort of 
you know, uh, you know, in the hands of somebody else, there'd just be, I don't know, some sort of duel between these two killers whilst they sort of sorted out who was going to, um, who was going to kind of like be the ultimately be the number one killer. But you know, like I just love the fact that you know what, why don't we just sort of see what happens if they move in and live together for a bit? You know, I love the fact that the film goes in that direction. So, um, uh, you know, and that's obviously in the lead up to the climax. Um, and yeah, it, the climax does go is is pretty is is out is pretty out there but i kind of think you know by that time you know the the suzuki's is you know he <laughs> we've we've had enough weirdness along uh, beforehand for that for that part of the film to actually feel you know relatively consistent with what's gone before so uh you know i i uh, i didn't i didn't mind it in the slightest i think certainly we've had enough weirdness especially when you look at uh, anumari's character i think she's got enough weirdness for several movies <laughs> Um, because she not only has this bizarre sexual relationship with him and a pinch for dead things, she constantly makes requests for Guru to kill him, kill her even, uh, which I found kind of kind of bizarre, but kind of tied in with her character. And as you said, obviously you got the scene where the number one killer and Guru move in together. Uh, I don't know, perhaps another light it could have been a very bizarre sitcom. <laughs> I would. I really want to see that sitcom now. That's a great. Um, you know, if you're pitching that to me, I would. I'd be like, okay, right, yeah, we're gonna. We're putting that into production now. But yeah, um, she. Um, she. She's. She's definitely uh, my favourite character. Uh, favourite character in this film. And as you're saying, yeah, she's. To- she's totally bizarre. And you know, she. Uh, you know, she only. Um, the only agrees to have like sex with Goro after he promises to kill her. I mean, you know, how messed up is that? <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, she, she's uh, an odd bird, to say the least. <laughs> you'd be, you'd feel a bit, um, you know, if you kind of, uh, you know, uh, sort of, we're doing internet dating, and you kind of ended up going on a on a date with her. You'd you'd feel very very worried, I think, um, if you sort of, you know, ended up with this, uh, you know, uh, bizarre, uh, bizarre lady with kind of like dead butterflies all over the wall with a with a with a kind of, you know, bizarre sexual death wish. Yeah, it's uh, there's, there's there's something that has to be said, especially in, especially in Asian cinema, that uh, the dating game is never quite what it seems. Um, I mean, it's just as soon as you obviously mentioned about the internet dating thing, my mind instantly goes to Takashi Miike's audition, um, and we see like the ladies who turn up for that audition. We have got like the nutcase from the asylum and the friendly lady who gets naked, and that alone, the obviously the psychopath he ends up with. Yeah, and that's, uh, again, that's a film for another discussion. But yeah, it's, it's um, interesting you've reminded me of that one because that's definitely up there in terms of uh, like sort of scariest movies that I've seen. Sort of like audition, yeah. The kind of the ending is absolutely like totally bonkers, crazy in that film, and um, I, I definitely remember being very very uh, shell shocked after getting to the end of that film. And um, I love I love especially the uh, DVD cover that I've got. Uh, for this one because uh, the poster is uh, one of those great Japanese painters posters um, when I eventually get around to redecorating the, the cat ranch here I'm going to be would like to have some of these posters because they're absolutely wonderful to look at and at the top it says beyond cult which I think <laughs> is probably the best description you can have for this film um, it is a cult film it's, it's safe to say but it is still an accessible film It's uh, while there are artistic elements in it it is not to the point where you would you can like I think if you're sort of familiar with sort of Asian cinema um, what to sort of expect it is a little more accessible than if you're sort of like 
this is your first taste of Asian cinema. Yeah, because I mean, it essentially is, um, you know, uh, you know, it's a gangs, you know, it's a gangster film, it's a crime film, it's, you know, it's it's hitman trying to, you know, hard to do a job, it goes wrong, and then kind of, you know, other hitmen are sort of sent in to sent in to kill them, and and they're they're trying to sort of stay alive. So, you know, it's, you know, kind of a sort of film that you would you would have watched a million times in some other format. So the kind of the the broad sort of outlines of the story are going to be sort of familiar to you so um you know and if you've kind of seen a few tarantino movies and kind of you know seen some of the you know uh, weirdness that he's kind of like imported into those films then you know i think branded to kill is, is, is you know, it's not a million miles from from there to where branded to kill is so yeah i think it's a i think it's a completely um i think it's a very accessible film um uh if you want to um yeah if you want to if you want to kind of like sample something that is uh is definitely um a bit out there a bit crazy a bit different um yeah and uh and beyond cult as well um right but i mean obviously before we wrap this up here i mean you obviously we've mentioned tarantino a few times throughout this interview and this podcast even and the way that he takes references from a lot of Asian cinema, a lot of Italian crime cinema. Um, I mean, with his sort of uh, style, do you feel that he sort of plagiarizes, or would you say it's more sort of scrapbooking for, for scrapbooking uh, ideas? Yeah, it's a bit. Um, you know what? I haven't fully really decided what I sort of think about that because um, I think that. Um, there is an element you do sort of like wonder well he is he's just he is just kind of like um picking things up off the kind of uh up off the shelf off the off the video store shelf and just kind of like assembling bits of other movies yeah. to kind of create me create new movies and um you know but tarantino you know he's very open about the the, the sources of his inspiration so you, you know you can't accuse him of trying to sort of take credit which um doesn't belong to him mm-hmm. so i um you know and you know to his credit he's but in doing some of the things you know he's actually pointing people towards these these films which they might not otherwise um uh, know about or experience so i i do think that um you know i think i think so i think i don't mind tarantino doing that um i do i do kind of sometimes think um some of the some of the some of the accolades that tarantino gets are are not wholly deserved because you know these the what he's creating aren't wholly aren't wholly original ideas you know he's nicking or borrowing um bit uh, lots of bits from other people um lots of bits from other directors and i think that i think that that needs to be you know whatever credit you give him he needs to sort of lose some marks um for that um so i kind of um yeah i probably haven't kind of come to a definitive verdict but i definitely think that um um you know i think you know I, yeah, I'm, I, I think that I think I've I think I've I think I've, I think I've outlined where I'm at with uh, with with uh, sort of Tarantino on this particular point. Yeah, I, I personally am a huge fan. I think it's more in the construction of his film. Jesse is scrapbooking ideas to um, an extent, but how he's putting it together is where it's interesting. Um, and it's good in the way that he does raise the profile, as you said, for these films. I don't think we would have films like Branded to Kill. We wouldn't have like the Lady Snowblood series or the Stray Cat Rock if he wasn't obviously making films because they are sort of foreign cult films and we wouldn't have perhaps this market for these sort of films 
if he wasn't obviously paying homage to him because obviously um, release com- um, distribution companies are constantly looking for ways to sort of cash in on what he's doing and in a way that they do that is often by releasing these films so it sort of pays off uh, well in our sort of favour. Yeah and absolutely you know and Tarantino you know he's kind of put his money where his mouth is to a certain extent in the sense that you know I think he's also um, re-released like film he's sort of dis- uh, he's re-released films on dvd kind of like through a sort of company that he's sort of involved in or sort of set up so he yes know. he had uh, rolling thunder pictures was his label he set up uh which unfortunately folded because it had the potential to be a really interesting project where he was doing the intro and outro to the films um he did chunking express he did switchblade sisters uh mighty Peking man and he did a few other titles that wouldn't have obviously had the distribution i didn't yeah. have for and I think with him obviously announcing his recent move towards retirement, it would be something I would love to see him pick up again, uh, if only to get more films like this out there. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, as I said, I think, uh, you know, he he doesn't try to doesn't try to take credit um, that doesn't belong to him. So um, and he does, you know, he's he's he, he spreads the word about the the about the word about the kind of the films that have inspired him um you know he's helped get them um re-released he's helped get them more well known so you know i think the the kind of, i think there's you know the i think the, there's more uh, the balance is more in credit with uh, in credit with him than it is uh in debt um obviously just bringing the film side back before we uh, went off on the tarantino tangent there uh which is always fun but um anything else you want to sort of add about branded to kill before we wrap this one up um, I would. Um, I don't think there's anything else I'd really want to add. I mean, I would just say. I mean, I've seen some other of um, Suzuki's films, and um, I would uh, really recommend um, people if you watch Brandon to Kill and really like it, then I would. I would sort of suggest going to watch um, Tokyo Drifter, which is mm-hmm. another kind of Yakuza flick. Um, it's not as zany or out there as Brandon to Kill. But um, it is still um, alive with um, ideas, and there's still um, there's still kind of you can see kind of um, Suzuki's um, uh, invention and um, imagination as a director on display in that film in terms of you know the look um, the look of the characters, the look of the shots. Um, you know the, the the thing that I really um, think is amazing about Tokyo Drifter is. The, a lot of the camera setups are actually really static in Tokyo Drifter and basically what Suzuki done, does in the film is you don't necessarily notice it at first because what he's so good at is framing shots and then having people do set them up in really dynamic ways and then kind of move, have people move around in the scene or just set the frame up in a really dynamic way that actually you don't notice that the camera isn't moving that much. Um, you know, and just, um, I say, yeah, testament to his, you know, ability, his visual imagination as a director. I would uh, highly recommend Tokyo Drifted. Um, definitely, it's a wonderful, wonderful movie. It's the first of his films that I actually saw. Um, again, it was due to Kill Bill that I saw it because, obviously, the reference to the switching between black and white and colour. Uh, maybe we just want to obviously see every film that he'd sort of like reference through Kill Bill, being the Tarantino sort of fanboy that I am. I like to obviously check out any film that he references. Uh, but uh, Tokyo Drifter, again, it's. A little arty in places, perhaps, but it is uh, still a really good starting point for the sort of Suzuki movies. And from there, you can obviously go on to films uh, such as Pistol Opera, which in many ways is sort of like a sequel. Uh, some say it's a remake of Branded to Kill, 
um, and obviously his last film to date, which is Princess Raccoon, which is really another play on the Studio Ghibli movie Pompoko. Yeah, I've not seen um, I've not seen um, either of them, either of those films. Um, uh, I've seen uh, one called uh, uh, Fighting Elegy, I think it is. That's um, in the pile still to watch for myself. Yeah, I don't remember it too well, but I do remember that you know again, um, you know, it's just like alive with alive with um, you know um, sort of ideas and visual richness and um, yeah, Suzuki's just. Um, you know, he's just an amazing, uh, an amazing director. Um, you know, to, to 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 have so many um, to kind of just create such imaginative films um, over and over again. Yeah, you know, have to give the man um, a lot of credit for that. Uh, Tokyo Drifter can also be found on the 1001 list, and we will be covering it on a later edition of the podcast. Uh, further viewing, though, any other films that you feel that people should uh, check out if you obviously like branded to kill um well i think um sort of mentioned some of them already so um ghost dog way of the samurai um is uh, a definite um sort of uh uh tipping is definitely tipping a wink back to branded to kill yeah. um and obviously tokyo drifter i've already mentioned so um yeah i think uh, if you like uh brand to kill i definitely i think sort of uh those would be another two uh, pit stops that you could make uh, if you want to kind of uh, pursue uh, the sort of uh, world of kind of uh, sort of Suzuki's world of sort of odd zany hitmen. Yeah, definitely. Um, as for myself, I think any film in the Suzuki uh, back catalogue is worth watching. Uh, but if you're obviously wanting to branch out a bit, then maybe I would recommend 1K Wars Fallen Angels as being another sort of stop off. Again, 1K War, like Suzuki, is very sort of art house. Um, but again, Ghost Dog, where the samurai, as with the samurai, um, is going to be sort of like the film that that you will find yourself constantly referring back to one if you once you've seen either of these movies, uh, you will find it very hard not to draw comparisons to. Uh, Ghost of Way of the Samurai, which heavily references both films. Uh, and with good reason. They're certainly worth watching, and it's been fun to obviously uh, talk about them this evening. So uh, thank you, Will, for uh, picking them out for us. No, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, two films I, I really love, so um, you know I'm, I'm glad to be able to have the chance to sort of talk about them and um, hopefully um, hopefully kind of inspire you know some p- other people to go and seek them out and watch them. Yeah. Um, Obviously, coming up in the month of December, uh, we're currently pitted head-to-head in the Lambcast uh, movie of the month for December, uh, which is going to be the Christmas special. Uh, you can vote now at largehousemovieblogs.com. Uh, for yourself, you're backing Die Hard 2. I am, in, I am indeed. Um, I have to confess, I didn't, I didn't give that, <laughs> I didn't give that a whole lot of thought before putting it forward. But um, you know what? I'm going to get out there hard. I'm going to start campaigning for that uh, for Die Hard 2. Yeah. I was so glad that you chose Die Hard 2 over Die Hard 1, um, just purely because that there's always this like uh, nudge, nudge, wink, wink joke of, oh, what's your favorite Christmas movie? Oh, Die Hard, and obviously because it is set at Christmas, like Gremlins. Uh, but now over here in the UK, we've obviously got Sky Movies who've got their Christmas channel and they've included Die Hard. So it's kind of lost something in a way. So uh, the fact you've gone for Die Hard 2, I think, uh, 
still keeping it diehard, which is always well, good. Well, the kind of what because um, I was thinking, oh yeah, well you know, die, die, die hard. Obviously, the first one is uh, you know set on uh, is set on Christmas Eve. Um, but what kind of I thought, oh, you know what, I can't. Die Hard Two has snow, so I felt that that was more that has that was more of a Christmas movie. So that was the that was the kind of um, deciding factor, along with the fact that um, you know, unfortunately, the Die Hard franchise now has moved away from um, basing all of its or setting all of its films on Christmas Eve, um, which I think you know is a, is a sad um, you know a poor decision on the other makers of the Die Hard franchise. I'd, I'd like to see if they make a sixth movie, I'd like to see them um re- return to the kind of like original concept of the movie um and set the action on uh, on christmas on Eve. christmas no just yeah. no, uh, would i mean would you settle for another holiday like thanksgiving <laughs> it's all no, like I drumstick think... in one hand and a pistol in the other or... um i i don't think it'd be the same for you know um setting it on an august bank holiday so i'm i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna be a stickler and say it's got to be christmas related okay I mean, on the plus side, we are currently only two movies away from Die Hard Week. Wow. Uh, Because obviously we've had five movies so far. Um, I mean, in an ideal world, we would go the full 30 and have Die Hard Month. (laughs) Or or in even a fantastic world, we'd go uh, Die Hard Year and have 365 Die Hard movies. Well, I mean, there are there must be um, 365 Die Hard in a you know insert location um, <laughs> type type films. So it probably, it probably uh, gets the point. Obviously, with Bruce Willis is uh, obviously wanting to get these movies sort of like made while he still can, and before it gets too ridiculous, where it's sort of like Die Hard trying to get to the bathroom on time, or Die Hard yeah. fights the Grim Reaper or something. Well, you kind of you know we sort of I I. I fully expect that we will at some point be watching, you know, uh, Die Hard Nine whilst, you know, uh, Bruce Willis is in a in a in a wheelchair, you know, with a colostomy bag, whilst his, you know, grandson biffs the baddies. Um, so, you know, I I I think, you know, he's he seems to have, um, you know, he seems to have a voracious appetite for money. So, um, I I don't, um, you know, he's he's got one of the most he's one of the most formidably active actors that there are if you look at his like imdb entries yeah. m- most years he's making bits like 10 plus movies um so you know he just i doesn't like promotion anymore that's the only problem with bruce Willis. <laughs> while he's <is> making <laughs> movies he just does not want to be doing the promotion side anymore as it's becoming evidently more clear yeah, especially um, I don't know what he's like. Uh, he he met his uh, his promotion uh, efforts in the UK for Die Hard Five were famously counterproductive. He yeah. was incredibly bad tempered during nearly every interview. Which uh, you know, I don't. If you want us to go and watch your movie, I mean, you know, play ball a little bit. I, I'm sure. It, I'm sure being on the older press treadmill is quite dull but um you can keep us it wouldn't kill him to keep a civil tongue in his head would it i think so i think he needs to do the only thing and just you know keep the fans happy i mean he's still a mark bruce willis is still one of the few 80s action icons who is still a marquee name he hasn't sort of faded away like sloan uh lundgren um schwarzenegger to an extent i would say but obviously i've I don't know if I, as much as it'd be fun to see, obviously, Bruce Willis as an old man in a wheelchair. I mean, if Amazing Mr. No Legs can work, um, then obviously it's given us a cue that Die Hard in a wheelchair could possibly work. 
Um, but Die Hard 2 also features Frank and Nero, the original Django, which is pretty cool. Yeah. He plays um, the uh, dictator of the made-up country, which I only found out last year. It does, and uh, it also stars um, a former presidential candidate. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Fred somebody, I can't remember. Um, oh, what's his name? Fred Dalton or something. So, yeah, it's got... Um, it's got, And it also has a... Uh, um, a fantastic uh, opening scene at the beginning of the film with some uh, nude Tai Chi. So you know, there's there's something <laughs> there's something there for everyone. Yeah, you know you're going to fa- face an absolute badass when he does Tai Chi in the nude. <laughs> um, That's how hard he is. And obviously, I've pitted my, the film I pitted against yourself is uh, Christmas Evil, also known as You Better Watch Out, because nothing says Christmas like a slasher dressed as Santa. I don't know this. Uh, you'll have to tell me about this. Movie okay. I don't know it at all. Um, basically, Christmas Evil, it's the story of this uh, factory worker. He works on a conveyor belt, can sort of like conveyor belt making toys for Christmas at this really dodgy toy factory. Um, and after some slight childhood trauma, he sort of loses himself into bringing Christmas cheer to everyone by uh, convincing himself he's become Santa. And he's like, makes this naughty and nice list and he sort of like judges him. But the kids like so bizarre like there's the naughty kid who asked for a year subscription to playboy um and he goes on this he goes on this uh his way of bringing holiday cheer and there's a great scene where he actually tries to go down the chimney and gets stuck um but he ends up going on a bit of a killing spree it's one of the better christmas slashes and unfortunately it was overlooked by the later release silent night deadly night uh, but John Waters is a big fan, and if you get the DVD, you also get the bonus of uh, John Waters doing the commentary track, which is pretty cool as well. I can imagine John Waters doing the commentary track to any film being just thoroughly amazing. But uh, so. it's it's going to be a hard battle, I think, because you've uh, obviously on there you've got Jingle All the Way, which again is another of my favourite Christmas movies. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, you've uh, got Joyous Noel which is from Journeys in Classic Film, which I haven't seen. Um, you've got Scrooged, which has been pitted by To the Escape Hatch. Uh, Jingle the Way is also by Deny, the site Deny Everything Instance for Promoting People's Sites. Um, and then we've got my friend Bubba Wheat over at Flights, Nights and, uh, Flights, Tights and Movie Nights, who has submitted a Christmas story. So uh, it's a mixed bag, uh, but if you want to obviously cash your vote, go to largehousemovieblogs.com. Uh, not only can you hear the Lambcast uh, over there, but you can also cash your vote and check out the other good stuff that is over there. But um, again, I'd like to say thank you, Will, for uh, obviously coming on the show this evening um, and giving your thoughts on both the Samurai and Brandon's Kill. Hopefully we'll get you back on a future edition to discuss more films from the list if you want to come back. No, I'd love uh, love to come back. Happy to uh, to talk about um, talk about films at any time. So yeah, love to. Cool. Um, so again, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Until next time, this is Elwood John signing off and reminding you to keep it strange. <laughs>